millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Wynn. Welcome to the Rocker Report podcast in association with the Sunland Community Soup Kitchen. We're after a pretty solid Easter weekend where we collected four out of the six points on offer. We're still biting our nails on where we'll end up with just three games remaining of the regulation season. And next up, we have Cambridge United at the Stadium of Light. So to talk all things Cambridge, among other things, I hope, we have a giant of sports broadcasting in this country. With a career that spanned over 30 years after beginning at BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, he went on to broadcast on Radio 4, 5 Live, Sky and Talk Sport. And he is, of course, a big Cambridge United fan. So we're privileged to welcome Mark Saggers. Hello, Mark. Chris, it's uh, really good to be here. There's a little bit more about me than just Cambridge <laughs> United with football, and it actually is Sunderland, and we'll no doubt come yeah, to that. I was amazed when you mentioned it, but uh, but thank you so much for, for joining us. I mean, welcome to the Rock Report podcast. I mean, from my point of view, I mentioned before we got going, it's great to have you on because um, you've been the soundtrack to so many hours of my car journeys over the years. So, so how are you keeping I'm keeping very well indeed, actually. Uh, I finished my contract with TalkSport after the Euros. Uh, I've got a new exciting venture coming up very shortly with Talk TV, And uh, it's just given me a little time, really, to uh, take a breath. 40 years, really, at it as far as broadcasting is concerned and within sport has yeah. been uh, an extraordinary lifetime. And uh, just to have the best seat in the house every week is, has been a privilege but it's not yeah. just those moments. It's who you meet. My philosophy on broadcasting in the end is more about the interviews that I've done and listening to those really involved. I love the games. I love all sport. Cricket was another big favourite of mine. But football has been there right from the start. Thanks to my father, who was no, who's no longer with us, sadly, but was a PE teacher and a scout for West Ham United, and discovered Matt Holland, amongst others, and Mervyn Day, and uh, my grandfather, who was a massive uh, football fan and married a girl from Sunderland. So Which I know will have surprised you. So <laughs> I, my yeah. first game for Cambridge United was in 1965. And in those days, it was Southern League football. And Bill Cassidy was the centre forward, King Cassidy. And I used to go with my father to that. And I tell you, it was at the ground it's at now. And we used to be able, as 
little kids to actually sit behind the goal on the wall and change ends at halftime. And it moved, it went on from there. My first game at Roker Park, though, was only a year later, 30 wow. days after England won, about 30 days after England won the World Cup in 66. In the first division, Sunderland beat Blackpool by four goals to nil. And I'll never forget Roker Park because it was the first time that I'd ever been to a real football ground. Cambridge United will forgive me that. <laughs> the walk-up, we parked just off uh, down in Seaburn and, and, and did the Roker Park walk. And then you could hear the roar, mainly from the Fulwell end, to be fair, as opposed to the, the, yeah. the Roker end. But we were sitting uh, in a pretty decent seat because my great-uncle was a man called Brian Truett, who founded a betting company in Sunderland called Gus Carter. And on the back of your old double-decker buses, your older <laughs> listeners <laughs> will know this, was yeah. shop at bins yeah. and get on the bus with Gus. <laughs> and Brian and uh, his sons and family, all part of uh, our family where my grandfather had married into to the other family, was uh, quite amazing. And uh, we were allowed in those days to go and watch Sunderland train. So we had, a, we had a summer holiday up in Sunderland. I always used to know I was close there because I could see Pencher Monument. And yeah, we used to, we and still do that. Do you remember that? Oh, we're still there, yeah. of course, now. And we used to have a yeah. lovely time. And then we used to go uh, to watch them train. And in those days, it would have been Len Ashurst, Charlie Hurley. A very young Colin Suggett was very much part of the team around that time, as far as I can remember. My father always used to talk about Len Shackleton from the, the distant past. And then, of course, on to the, the big guys, uh, the Porterfields, the Jim Montgomery's and uh, the Billy Hughes and everyone else who went on to beat Leeds in 73. So Sunderland was always that. And I went Cambridge United way and my brother went Sunderland way. But I've seen Sunderland on, on numerous occasions, particularly away games, because we lived further south and if there was a live game to go to, I was always going to go. So I have a real connection with Sunderland in many ways. And, and what was absolutely lovely for me was that uh, last year before England played in uh, what was going to be my final covering of uh, England uh, as the presenter of all of their matches uh, in the major competitions, uh, they had two games up at uh, the Riverside at Middlesbrough. And uh, my wife said, oh, go on, go and spend a week up in Sunderland. <laughs> and uh, retrace your grandfather's steps and and what what he did there and and what you know and I had a, just had a fantastic time and yeah. uh, when yeah. that was game and I can't believe we're together in League One these days but hopefully yeah. for Sunderland we're we're we've uh, we're solidified in mid table but hopefully for Sunderland three games though in the next uh, eight days Oof, yeah. how difficult is that going to yeah. be it's so there we are that was the start really that was the start of it I was inspired by the the massive roar, the Roker roar, and I was um, at home when it came to Cambridge United in the Southern League. But I was there yeah. right from the start when they went into the league in 1970 and the first game against Lincoln City, uh, and uh, on it went. And uh, yeah. I've never never given up on them. That's incredible, incredible. that we, uh, People may think we got you on because we knew that, but um, no, didn't know that connection at all. Um, but I was just going to say there, when you were talking about um, going just after the, that World Cup, I mean... 
you mentioned the Rocker end. The Rocker end was probably a bit bigger than the full wall end. It um, was back then, but. When you went, the roof for the full end was brand new because we built that for that World Cup. Mm. And also, we would have just taken out the temporary seating because actually the, for the World Cup, the, the full end had, I think they put wooden seats in so people could sit down in the full end. So I'm, I'm sure it was back to normal by the time the, the game against Blackpool. I, I think happened. I'm right in saying, I remember my, my father said, you'll hear it uh, as, yeah. we, <laughs> as we as we got out of the car. And then he said, and don't forget that one of the greatest World Cup games ever was when the great Eusebio played, of course, for Portugal yeah. in, in that game against Korea. Yeah. You know, I was just so excited about the whole thing. It was just great, yeah. really. And I've always been a fan. That's me. I'm, I'm, I'm like you, Chris. I'm a, I'm a fan. And I always used to listen to the great Peter Jones and Brian Butler. Yeah. And eventually I got to work with them, which was yeah. just quite extraordinary. When you mentioned Cambridge actually got into the league in 1970, it actually surprised me a little bit. But we'll get back into that a little bit because um, you mentioned that you ended up working with these heroes. It all began kind of at BBC Radio Cambridge, like we mentioned up top. But I mean, at that point, did working in the local radio station, covering your team, did that feel like the dream job at the time? It was amazing. Uh, I thought I was I wanted to be a cricketer professionally. Never quite made it. And I touched on it, but wasn't quite good enough. Played a lot of minor county cricket. Played up at Jesmond in a final. Uh, in those days, of course, Durham were a minor county. Played against them many times. Yeah. But uh, never made it. Went to sell insurance for the uh, chairman of uh, Cambridgeshire uh, Cricket. And uh, he said, you're only coming here so I can give you time off to play for us. And I did. But I knew I eventually needed a proper job. And, and Radio Cambridgeshire had only just started. And I thought I know an awful lot about the sport round here. And I just knocked on the door and uh, without this man, who sadly is no longer with us, the great late Julian Dunn, who'd come down from BBC Radio Stoke to Radio Cambridgeshire, uh, I would never have got into this business. And he said, come in and help me on a Saturday afternoon. I I know you've worked uh, around here. I'm going to know that you you know your sport and, and let's get that way. So in fact, I I covered Cambridge United Reasonably early on, in those days, we used to travel on the bus. And I, uh, John Doherty was the manager in those days. And one of those ridiculous stories. So he always said to me, Mark, you can only cover these games away because you're on the bus with us. But I really want you to keep very quiet. I don't want you really to say too much. Certainly anything that you hear or see on here, I don't expect it to go out anywhere. If it does, you won't ever be able to come again. And at one point during that sort of early period, I sat with a young David Moyes who was centre-half and he wanted to sit next to me because at that time he'd already decided that he no longer really wanted to continue playing football eventually. He wanted to be a manager. And he used to pick my brains thinking I knew an awful lot more about the broadcasting side of things than I actually did. But he talked about his philosophies for the game and his thinking and what he did, even in those days. And he and I got up a friendship that I never lost. And I would say this to anybody who's in whatever business they're ever doing, you know, never forget those early days and, and, and listen, because David Moyes, having trusted me then, granted me the first ever radio interview with a very young and inexperienced talker, Wayne Rooney when he was at Everton. So, wow. you know, but that went back to we were mates and it went on from there with many. And of course it was very different even in those early days 
that uh, used to go to training as a reporter and watched. The manager knew you personally, of course, whether it was uh, local radio, which I was on, or even whether it was national television. They knew you. Used to go along, they, and the great thing in those days used to be able to speak to managers, whether it was John Doherty at Cambridge, and uh, eventually it came on to a guy called Chris Turner when it all changed for me, mm. was that they'd say to you, go easy on so-and-so, I'm picking him this weekend, but his wife's <laughs> heavily pregnant and she's not feeling very well, so if he has a stinker or I take him off, there will be a reason behind it. And I think we've lost that these days. But this was my introduction to it. And so I, for nearly two years, uh, just helped out, helped out, did a bit of that and a bit of this. And, and then uh, there was, I got an offer, never went to university or anything like that. And I got an offer to um, uh, go for an interview for a non-graduate trainee course at BBC Sport and Outside Broadcast, as it was in those days, in London. In 19, this was 1985. And uh, I got it. I couldn't believe it. There's three of us who got the jobs. A guy called Graham Reed Davis, who became the number two in the whole department. Ian Brown, who was a, uh, a good football commentator and uh, still around. And myself. And, uh, you know, for everybody, some of these names won't resonate for you because they, they were a lot, a, a bit before uh, your time, Chris. But the first Friday I walked in for this 18-month uh, non-graduate contract as a producer. 3H was the building at Broadcasting House. And on Friday, everybody turned up and I opened the door and walked in. And on my right was Peter Jones. On my left was Brian Butler. There was Des Lynham. There was John Motson. There was Ian Robertson from rugby. There was Tony Adamson, who was best known for tennis and golf. And there was Cliff Morgan. Then there was others like... Um, all sorts of other guys who, who became famous names. And I'm thinking, I'm just walking through basically a gallery of the greats of radio. So in the way that you listened to me, I listened to these guys. And um, I spent 18 months then and I walked into the boss's office and he said, we're going to make you do some cricket. You're not broadcasting because you're here as a, a producer, but we know that you played cricket. And the Aussies are over for the 85 Ashes series. Peter Baxter needs an assistant. Brian Johnson needs somebody to get his beef sandwiches when you get to Lords. You're covering <laughs> the Texaco Trophy and all the Test series. Wow. And that's how it started. Brilliant. And then I went away and back to local radio. Came back to Radio Cambridgeshire because I wanted to broadcast more than I did be a producer. And I was, there was never going to be a place for me at that stage. I needed to go away and cut my teeth a lot more. So I, I went back and I worked for, did the breakfast show at Radio Cambridgeshire. Changed my life, literally, completely. When I got back there, Chris Turner was the manager of Cambridge United. Not the ex-Sunderland goalkeeper, who everybody thinks yeah, he was, yeah. but he was a, <laughs> a centre-half and a brilliant centre-half. He'd actually played in 77 over in the States and he'd been player of one of the seasons when, when there was the, all of the bests and everybody else at that time were all there. Great player. But he'd come back and he'd come from Southend to Cambridge United and he didn't live too far from Cambridge. You know, he was the manager. And I just, I knew eventually I wanted to get back into network broadcasting. And I got to know him a little bit. And then I, I just rang him up one day and I said, Chris, it's the Mark from the radio station. Could I just come along to a training session after the breakfast show? and uh, watch how you coach and how you train. And he said, yeah, come along. 
I wasn't married at the time. I used to finish at nine. It was show and go, even in those days. So <laughs> as long as I got back for 5.30 the next morning, I didn't need to do anything else. So I went to the Abbey Stadium and they, they used to train there and use one of the university grounds for uh, their training. And it, he sat me down and he said, right, he said, uh, nothing leaves here. You don't go in the dressing room unless invited by the players. I don't go into the dressing room unless invited by the players. But uh, while you're here, you can uh, put these football boots on, put a tracksuit on, and uh, you can come and do some training with us, even if it's only putting out some cones and fetching the balls that they kick everywhere. And uh, Malcolm Webster, who was an Arsenal goalkeeper and went on to work very successfully as a coach with uh, Ipswich Town as well, was his number two. And uh, it started from there. And I, I, used to, I, used to, I used to do that breakfast show. And then I used to go in the afternoons with Chris to keep him company in the car to combination games. He introduced me to all the managers that were there, from Brian Clough to whoever. And we used to play a game. He would never tell me who we were going to watch, but he wanted me to see if I thought there was anybody in these games that he was interested in and why he'd be interested in him. And this is where I first learned about professional footballers looking at the game so differently to us. In that day and age, in the fourth division, he was looking for legs. He was looking for box to box with the big engine, as they used to say, as much as with the skillful player. And um, we came very close to signing Dalian Atkinson, but it didn't happen. But Chris continued and, and had something about him, hard Hard man, great spotter of talent, though. Lovely guy and became a very close friend. And Malcolm moved on and uh, John Beck came as a player. And Gary Johnson eventually came, Lee's dad, as the youth team coach. And I'm still doing the breakfast show at Radio Cambridgeshire. But I'd been made in the meantime. And I, th- I think I was the first ever player liaison officer at a football club. I think I must have been in the early 80s, really, or whatever, yeah. and towards yeah. the 90s, because no, was just... So when Liam Daish joined us from Portsmouth, he'd had a bit of a struggle in early career in the, in the game, and he'd been thought of as a naughty boy, but he wasn't at all. But I met him at the station, and I told him where to live in Cambridge, which pubs to drink in, which ones not to drink in, where to go, and everything like that. And, and I, I did this with quite a few of the players and um, got to the, know them all very well. And by this stage, I was, I was a wicketkeeper, really. And I was now training as the goalkeeper that they used if they needed any extra training, if Keith Brannigan <laughs> didn't want it. So they used to just smash balls at me after training, basically. But I went every day for three years and I played a couple of reserve team games for them against Lake Norian. I only let one in on, on that occasion and few others but more importantly than that I really that was my basis for learning what to say what not to say and why professional footballers are the way they are why they don't want to go back and play in the afternoon why their concerns uh, are so much more than ours of their form whether they're in the team whether they're not and this whole development and the kids coming through. And this story I'm going to tell you now, for me, really illustrates more than anything, the fine line between success and failure. So we used to come back after training and sit in the this little manager's office and Turns was in the bath. Gary Johnson and John Beck 
used to chat over training every day and what they were going to do at the weekend. And we're coming towards the end of this particular season. And Dion Dublin come on a free from Norwich City. Mm. And everybody liked Dion. They all liked him. Got a great spring. But he came as a centre-half on a free transfer. And towards the end of the season, Chris said, I really like Dion, John and uh, Gary, but I've already had a word with him. He's not what we need to get out of the fourth division. And so I've told him I haven't completely made my mind up yet, but I might be letting him go. Chris was very forthright with that. Mm. And and, then Becky said, uh, what did he say? And he said, well, he said he'll probably go back into the music business or something like that. He's not sure that he'll further his career in football. Gary Johnson said, hang on a minute, Chris. He's got a fantastic spring. He might not be that hard. He's a lovely bloke. You know how good, how fit an athlete he is and, and a really good man. Let's give him let's give him more chance up front than at centre-half. And uh, they put him up front and they kept him. <laughs> and then many years later, I went back. I was now working in network back with the BBC. John Beck called me back to the uh, Abbey Stadium and said, Mark, I've got together all of the goals that Dion Dublin has scored for Cambridge United. We're going broke if we don't do something quickly. I want you to put together with me this particular video and we'll send it, tells you how long ago it was, video, we'll send it to every Premier League manager. And Fergie bit off the back of that. Dion went for a million, the rest was history. And he's now back, I'm absolutely delighted to say Dion Dublin is a, a director at Cambridge United, he joined as a director again this year. But what a fine line, Chris, between absolute yeah, yeah. failure and absolute success, having gone on to play so well for all those other great clubs he played for and becoming an England international too. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, talk about a, a dream job. I mean, I was just thinking you were covering them, but you were kind of in behind the scenes at Cambridge. I mean, but just listening to your your background there and how you how you started off almost speaking to the managers on on a daily basis we spoke to Bill Bradshaw a while back and he was talking about you know the modern day journalist he said he would be kind of pulling his hair out because you try to talk to players now you try to talk to managers now there's professional you know teams that the clubs have got behind the scenes where they manage what's said or how long you've got with them I mean looking back you almost must be so glad that you were in that era and you must kind of feel sorry a little bit for the people who are trying to get that information. Oh, it's completely different. And uh, I'll I'll come along and illustrate that a little later. But one of those great things for that was, I mean, I was was used as a bit of a sticking pins into cushion as well. I mean, I used to travel now on this stage because, of course, I was free of doing anything but the breakfast show. So I used to travel on the coach still uh, away from And they used to throw most of my clothes out the out the top of the coach on the way back or just try and set fire to me every day again and all sorts of <laughs> ridiculous things that these days but I was I was I was up for all of that you know I mean I was yeah. that was part of it and they really trusted me and eventually when we got to this great side of the Kimball twins at defense John Vaughan who played for Palace was in goal uh, Phil Chappell who's working very hard still was not that long ago for Charlton was it was a good player. Peter Butler who had arrived and then went on to play uh, successfully for West Ham. I think he now coaches in Singapore. Dion was up front with John Taylor, which was extraordinary. And after that was the likes of Claridge and and, and many others. So, but it was fantastic. And uh, Chris 
Turner introduced me to my wife, who was a television broadcaster from the Midlands. She was a Coventry City fan, but she was working the same patch as me. And he put us on a blind date together. And uh, and that was that. And we're still happily married. Um, and uh, Chris no longer with us. One of the first footballers, I'm afraid, to lose it in the early 60s through the dementia of heading a football, mm. because he was a great stalwart of a centre-half. But John Beck went from straight to strength to strength after Chris. Had, le- had left Cambridge United and so did the club. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, God, you mentioned some great names there. I mean, actually, just Liam Dage. I'm, I'm pretty sure Liam Dage's career pretty much ended at Roker Park. I think he got a knee injury playing for Coventry at, at Roker mm. Park. And I think that was pretty much his, his career over. But uh, but we'll get we'll get back on a little bit um, on, on Cambridge because I really want to hear more about um, John Beck because it, it fascinates me. But uh, you did mention that early on they kind of threw you into the cricket scene and how much you love your cricket I mean looking I mean just looking at your kind of the what you've been involved in you've been in the kind of enviable position of being the voice on Olympic Games the Grand mm-hmm. National um, you were you were on duty for the race that never was in the early 90s um, cricket test matches tennis boxing uh, Premier League World Cups um, and actually just to emphasize the point of how versatile you are I found a a, a good description of you from your fellow Cambridge United fan, uh, Max Rushton, okay. um, when he said, "When he said he, he's at his absolute furious best when off air discussing the failings of public transport," which I thought was uh, <laughs> quite, quite a good description. But but you are you are a chameleon uh, in terms of you know how many you know sports you you've yeah. covered over the years. I mean, did you purposely put yourself out there to cover multiple sports or did you just get the opportunity? I got the opportunity. I think the great thing was I I eventually went back uh, when BBC Sport had sent everybody else to the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand in 1990. And I knew then I'd got an opportunity to broadcast. So I went back to work. In those days, again, it was still a sport on two and it was still on Radio 2. And but it was coming to the end and we were moving to five live with the, the start of the Premier League and everything else. But it was called, I can't remember what we were called in those days. It was BBC Radio Five Live as opposed to just Five Live or whatever. And um, anyway, I get back there and Cliff Morgan had always been a mentor of mine, the, form, the very famous Welsh rugby union player and just knew everybody. So I, I went on a three-month contract, spoke to Jane, my wife, and, and I said, she said, just go for it, Mark. You're never going to get this opportunity again. They only ask you once. They want you as a voice now, not to produce. You never wanted to produce. Go for it. So I went for it. They offered me a full-time job after a week. And Cliff Morgan, who in those days used to do a programme called Sport on 4 on Radio 4, used to get me to write a piece about something that had happened during the week. And uh, then to 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 do it, anything from between 40 seconds and a minute and a half that he would then put into the programme. And um, I used to write the, the, the piece and what have you. And he used to screw most of them up and throw them in the bin and say, you're better than that. And he was, he, was, he was great. And two very quick stories about him, if I may. He was the great man. He knew everybody. And he and I were the only two at that stage smokers in the department. And we had a great head of sport called Mike Lewis, who wasn't a smoker. And we get to Barcelona, get picked for the Barcelona gig. And we're in the broadcasting centre and, and your own office and everybody else is there. And Cliff Morgan sidles up to me and he's a god at this stage anyway. And he goes, Mark, he said, 
I've made a little arrangement for us to go and sit outside, a small little table, two chairs, so that we can have a cigarette when we need one. Well, again, to cut a long story short, everyone used to pop into the BBC office, say, from Juan Antonio Sarantz to royalty to superstars is Cliffin. And they used to say, oh, he's probably out the back writing things up with his mate, who was me. And we started off with two tables and a little round table. Within a week, and this was before the, the games really started, we had a little bar out there and cafeteria. We had umbrellas. We had meeting. He basically <laughs> brought this place together. And both he and Terry Wogan were on that trip together. And I worked with Terry Wogan. And wow. that combination again, taught me the little bit that I needed at that stage when I thought, you know, I was the greatest now. I was I, I was actually the boxing commentator, would you believe, at uh, the 92 Olympics. Uh, Michael Carruth was uh, the uh, Irish winner of a gold medal and I commentated on that. But I worked with Terry on his, he was doing all his sort of bits and pieces around everything. And I, I perhaps got a little bit too serious. There was a couple of uh, Bulgarian weightlifters who failed drug tests and everything, and I wanted to do all this quite seriously. Anyway, Vogan took me out and said, um, Mark, I know that you want to be a serious sports reporter, and you will be, he said, but with me on this show, I want it to be a bit lighter. In fact, what I want you to do now is I want you to disappear after the bulletin tomorrow morning. I don't want to see you for days and we'll see what happens. And I said, well, I, I've got to do this for my job. He said, no, no, I've had a word with the boss. Go and just disappear. Go and watch some other sport. Enjoy yourself. Anyway, he started this ridiculous thing. Where's Saggers? And Wogan was at his absolute height there when because he was really Radio 2 but working for us. And where's Saggers was all he asked for three days. And... <laughs> Anyway, eventually, on the fourth day, he said, I think I've found Saggers. He's at the boxing arena. Let's go over to him now. And I went, huh? And he cut me off and said, yeah, that's him. We'll, we'll speak to him again at another, at another <laughs> stage. And i tell you how amazing that was. A few years later, playing cricket for the Cambridgeshire All-Stars against Lord's Taverners. And Leslie Crowther came into bat. And he looked at me and he said, who are you? And I said, Mark Saggers. Um, oh, he said, I found you. And I said, excuse me. He said, where's Saggers? <laughs> I mean, that, that, was, that was terrible. So I had all of that. I had Cliff Morgan, then I had all the other great broadcasters around that. And it was more relaxed in those days. And uh, it was so all of these things going on. And 92, the Olympics for me were incredible. But I learned for my television days more than anything as well, as a floor manager, work at Dave, working for BBC TV. And now uh, Wogan has decided I'm talking again. I'm still at the boxing and everything. And um, I think it was one of the great American uh, heavyweights, uh, George Foreman, and the, the, the lean machine. Do you remember he had a grinning lean machine at that stage? Anyway, yeah. he was there commentating. And uh, Dave said, after BBC TV, you can have uh, George for the show. And I'm thinking, oh, great, this is basically one of the most famous sportsmen at that stage I'd ever interviewed. And he said, but I'll give you a little bit of a, a nod. He said, why don't you tell Terry Wogan that you've got George Foreman for him to speak to? I said, well, I can't like to do it. He said, it'll do you a lot of good. Anyway, I took that and 
George Foreman spoke to Terry Wogan. And when Sky came in for me, Terry Wogan helped me sort out my contract for nothing, which was extraordinary. So those great moments uh, along the road. And it was because, really, the the Grand National that never was that I I got that contract. I was working... The new Five Live had started, and I I did a programme called Lunchtime at Aintree, and then that was the rest of my day off. Uh, Jane, my wife, was with me and friends up from up in Liverpool. We were going to stay there. And suddenly the race that never was, the false start and everything. And I jumped down. I was very close to the Pitmans at this stage. I'd covered a lot of stuff with them. And uh, in those days, we just had these massive reel-to-reel tapes. And there was very little live stuff um, except for the big shows. And I jumped over the white fence and cleaned up there. And then at six o'clock, they were going to hold a press conference that Everybody was going to take. And, of course, the BBC had the rights at Aintree. And uh, Bob Shannon was now the controller of Five and said, Mark, you know, you're going to get to ask the first question. Make it a good one. (laughs) So, anyway, everybody was there. And in came all the the famous and uh, all of the the stewards and everybody else from Aintree. And I asked not just the first question, I asked the first six and uh, didn't think anything more of it. And two days later, I got a call from Andy Cairns, head of Sky News Sport, and said, I want you to come and work for me. And I was toying between, I wanted to be a cricket commentator at that stage, because I I was the only sport I could commentate on properly. Never going to be a football commentator. The presenter, great, and asking questions. but So I said, I want to be a cricket commentator. And I said that to Mike Lewis as well. Mike said, there's no place for you at Test Match Special, I'm afraid, at the moment or anything. So, you know, we'd still love you to stay. And I said, I can't. I've got to go. And so I went to Sky in those very early days, Sky News Sport, just as everything was happening. And um, it was the best thing I ever did, really, because I I, yeah. I presented Sportsline and, and went around the world with them. As Rupert Murdoch's, we were, there, we were his conscience, really, at that stage. He needed to get into Parliament. He needed to get television sets working. And globally, he was, he was on this big... Uh, field and uh, we we again then went and did some extraordinary things that you would never have done. I remember outside the hospital in Victoria at the Commonwealth Games, where it was a shop putter had uh, f- you know failed a drugs test. One of our shop putters, Paul, can't remember his surname now. And uh, Rob Bonnet was there from the BBC. And in those days, you only had f- two five minute windows when the satellite went over in the space of twenty four hours. <laughs> so you used to have to do a three minute recorded package to send back so he got two minutes anyway Rob Bonnet's there doing you know Diane Medal was another who'd been taken off the track because there were concerns about her and whether she'd been involved in drugs uh, he hadn't named her he just said that she was one of the English athletes of course at the Commonwealth Games and and the English shot putter is also in hospital and Kenzie had said to me now we go bigger than this even though we did everything outside so I said so here I am Outside this hospital in Victoria, Diane Medal snatched from the track in many ways, having perhaps snatched victory from others because she's been accused of drug problems. And then Paul, whatever his name was now, I should know it and I apologise. But Paul is lying in a bed in the hospital behind me, frothing at the mouth, having overdosed on Alka-Seltzer, trying to flush drugs out (laughs) of his system and all this sort of rubbish. And that's the way we went. That's the way we went about it. And we had to, we had no, no rights to anything. So we were always on the outside. So I used to have to pull people outside and we have to try and find something very different. 
And um, that's what we did. Absolutely what we did. In, I, was, I went to the release from prison of Mike Tyson yeah. in Indiana. And he'd been at the Indiana Penitentiary after everything that had happened. And uh, Sky at that stage were really working hard on the boxing with Frank Warren and Don King. Do you remember? With the electric hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Mike Tyson was obviously a big fighter of his. And this was early days of a proper satellite nowadays. So we were working with a Reuters crew in Indiana, sent out there to um, do the, the release from prison live, which was going to be at six o'clock in the morning. It was the first big live that, again, Sky News and the sport had done. So, but of course, with that, it's such a big, hungry animal. They wanted way more than just me being live at that. And then when I arrived, you sort of go, we drove through all these, this, this Indiana countryside with all these wonderful fields of corn and everything and the sea, the, the sun was burning down on you and then you could see all the shimmering and suddenly, literally like something out of an American movie, the four watchtowers with the, with the guards with the guns on each of them, you know, and, and then we're there. <laughs> Turn a corner into the drive, which is a very long quarter of a mile drive. And there's 150 ladders, step ladders, with 150 different camera crews and 150 different American reporters <laughs> at 10 past the hour, all standing up together and all doing their bit and carrying on. And we joined all of that. But we had three days. And Don King had said to me, I understand that you're coming out. He said, I'd like you to tell the British audience that Mike is a reformed character now and he's been reading Dickens and Shakespeare and Pliny, and he's converted to uh, Muslim, and uh, he's uh, been worshipping at a mosque. Oh, I said, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, we needed something different from what everyone else was doing. So this was the day before the release, and I said to my producer, Terry, I said to her, I said, Terry, um, is there a North American mosque anywhere close by? Could we find out or anything and what have you? So we did, and sure enough, two and a half miles down the road there was, so we just drove around there with our crew, knocked on the door. The imam came to the door and said, yeah, hello, can I help you? And I said, look, we're here to cover the release from prison of Mike Tyson. And they said, oh, yeah, come in, come in. He he worships here regularly. Oh, I said, um, and uh, he said, actually, I understand that before he goes back to his home on the hill in Ohio somewhere, he said he, he's coming here to worship and give praise and thanks for uh, <laughs> being reformed. And I said, uh, can I come in and... They said, yeah, you can. Nobody else, we haven't, nobody else has come at all. Everybody else, nobody else has said anything. But, you know, you can, you can come in. So I said, okay, that would be great. Can I bring my crew in? I'm afraid you can't bring your crew in. But you can come in and, you know, from that you can tell everybody what you want. So I go back and we do the same as everybody else. And I'm thinking, is this really going to happen? But we'll park the car the other way because the airport was the other way anyway. 5.30 in the morning, there are helicopters. There's, there's four times as many people as there ever was before and everybody just wants... We get the shot of him coming out and he's wearing his skull cap and everything and he comes out, gets put into the car, big limousine, of course, Don King looking happy and waving and everything. We nail it as everybody else does. It wasn't a difficult thing to describe at that stage. And then as soon as I, the doors shut, before they've even left, I've left the crew knowing that they they could follow on. But I've gone with Terry, jumped in our car, <laughs> raced to the mosque. Now, he could have gone the other way, but on now and again, you've got to take, and I was a gambler in those days, so you've got yeah. to take your chance. 
So we get to the mosque and then I'm thinking I might not even be allowed in. It might all just be baloney anyway. So get to the mosque, in I get. And they said, yeah, we're, we're expecting him. And we have a special guest here too. I said, okay. And I said, so I will be able to come in. Yeah, sure. We've, we're not allowing anybody else in except worshippers and you. And there won't be many here and, and inside, but everyone will be outside. Ten minutes later, Mike Tyson walks in with Don King and Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and there are the four of us on the front row kneeling inside the mosque with Mike Tyson to his left, Muhammad Ali, and to his right, Don King, and to Don King's right, me. And as they pray, and I'll never forget this, Don King was sort of bobbing up and down alongside me. And then he looked at me to the right and he just went, one million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars. Anyway, they finished the thanks to Allah. Off they went. But it was using the great Frank Keating, who was a brilliant journalist um, with The Guardian and wrote uh, Muhammad Ali at this stage in the early 90s was between the great Parkinson interview and the development of Parkinson's disease. And it was before he lit the flame in Atlanta in 96. And so they all left with Don King and Mike Tyson leaving me in the car park of the mosque with two security guards and Muhammad Ali. (laughs) And we filmed him and did everything. He couldn't really speak even then. He was speaking much more through his eyes at this stage. Just one of those extraordinarily unbelievable moments. And uh, in 96, when he, he lit that flame in Atlanta... And that wasn't the greatest of games. And there was the centennial bombing and, and everything else that went on there, of course. But that moment as he shuffled as he had to onto that set, the everything that you'd ever seen from the greatest athlete you'd ever seen in the in the ring, he was giving twice as much strength to to just taking that walk forward as he did. And it was an extraordinary moment and a perfect fitting end to that whole story for me that's incredible to end up meeting someone like Muhammad Ali like that but I mean just on that subject because I was reading the list of people you've had one-on-one interviews with and you mentioned the Wayne Rooney one I mean imagine he was he was quite a you know a young player and he hadn't didn't have the presence he had further down the line but I mean obviously the likes of Muhammad Ali with with the people who you thought (laughs) that they're such a you know legendary sportsman that I'm actually in awe a little bit and I'm going to have to really concentrate on you know making sure I do the right things and I, I I completely agree with you and I think that way but again it was a different time it was mm. a different time and it was a time that you had more time mm-hmm. I'll come back and talk about Terry Venables in a moment but somebody who really illustrated all of this to me more than anything was actually at those 96 games in Atlanta when we were allowed only outsiders sky with the cameras. We, I was allowed in, but the cameras weren't allowed in any of the venues. And we used to just hope that some of the athletes would come out after they'd done their drug tests and what have you. And I had this two bizarre moments around the same night, I think it was. It was, definitely. There was a, a girl called Michelle Smith, who was an Irish swimmer, who suddenly had won three gold medals in the pool, beating all the Americans who couldn't believe it. And she eventually 
tested positive for drugs, but at this stage, she was a gold medalist. And out she came later on, and we stood talking, and we're like two minutes into our interview, and there's this old fella just sort of in the background, just sort of not going away and starting to look like this and everything. We're live for this, and uh, I'm thinking, I know him. I don't know where I know him from, but I know him anyway. (laughs) said, come on in, you're obviously interested. And he said... I wanted to come in. I wanted to do this. I really wanted to shake the hand of this girl who's been absolutely magnificent. It comes from that great Irish country. And it was Jimmy Carter, the uh, former, <laughs> well, yeah. they don't call them former, the American president. So I then do an interview with Jimmy Carter and Michelle Smith. And then we got back on another night from the pool when I think I'd been waiting for one of the English swimmers to pee into a pot. Uh, at the end of the swimming, I think this was, and to do the drugs tests and everything. And so we're back late. And we're actually, because we, were allowed, we weren't allowed in the broadcast centre, we're overlooking Centennial Park when the bomb went off. And we're very late. And as we get back there, hardly anyone else around, the bomb goes off. And uh, I was working with a brilliant uh, South African cameraman called uh, Ian Robbie. And uh, everybody else was rushing out of Centennial Park as we were rushing into it uh, to get to the actual scene and and do the first pictures and, and try to help with the whole situation there, which again was was very different for me. And the next, the unfolding story over the next three hours was I was back in my sort of news head at this stage and Jeremy Thompson was our, our great American correspondent, but he was nowhere to be seen because this was very late at night and he'd been working on the other stuff. So I'm there to do the first live on what is now the mega story of the Atlanta Games. And... Um, we're on the roof overlooking Centennial Park. And like in all those great American movie films, there's that door on the roof when they have the cops and robbers chase. Do you remember that? They open that, they come. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's like 30 seconds before we're due on and I've got all of the, all of the armed police and everybody is there now and we'll have it all down below. And Jeremy, dear old Jeremy, brilliant, brilliant news broadcaster, bursts through this door, combing his hair like that and saying... And holding up his phone going, it's London. It's me they want, not you. And I said, I'm not moving. And I did, I did, I did the first one. And then for the next three days, he had me chasing everywhere while he stayed there. But I mean, all of, all of these moments are just, just stuff you, you just couldn't, I mean, you, well, you, you, could not, you couldn't make it up, but it was, it was extraordinary. But you had to be there. And we put the hours in. I mean, we were on 18 hours. I think when I worked at Sky News, worked it out with Jane, that I was away about between seven and nine months for a four or five year period, just covering stories everywhere. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. It was great. I mean, you've you've mentioned um, already mentioned the organisations that you worked for, and I did up front. I mean, BBC on a national level for around kind of twenty years over two spells. Um, you're at Sky for almost a decade. Talksport for around ten years after that. Yeah. I mean, all completely different yeah. organisations and at different stages of their development as well. I mean, did you ever feel the need to kind of tailor your approach depending on which organisation you were working for at the time or did that not come into the equation when when you were going through your preparation? I think it did very much, but I think I'd got such a really good grounding from the broadcasters that I worked with at the BBC. Ron Jones, who was a, a great Welsh commentator, good footballer, good cricketer, he always said, just say what you see. No more than that, Mark. You don't need to make anything up. Say what you see. Do your homework. Don't tell everybody what you know 
and ask those that everybody wants to hear from. And they sort of stayed with me. I mean, I used to do the Today programme with Brian Redhead and uh, John Humphreys. And in those days, there was the political interview was always before my uh, bulletin at 8.25, my second bulletin. And uh, after Thatcher would be sitting there and correcting my English on my paper next to me after having just done an interview or whatever. And um, I remember Brian Redhead when Tony Blair, I think he was even just shadow uh, health in those days he, he after he'd done his first interview on the Today programme and I'd been in there sitting waiting for my my go and uh, he walked out and uh, Brian Redhead just turned to John Humphreys and said if John Smith doesn't become the next Prime Minister of the Labour Party he's going to be the next one after that yeah. and or just yeah. sort of extraordinary moments but moments that now have changed so much so when I when I covered Terry Venables is England 18 months up to Euro 96, there was a, at all the training sessions and at the press conferences afterwards at Lillishall, there would be one uh, local television crew from the regional ITV station. There would be a football focus and there was us. And that was it. Sky Sports News didn't really exist so much even at that stage. So that was it. So three cameras. And that made me, after asking two very difficult questions of Terry Venables at the first interview I ever did with him, hauling me up afterwards and saying, I don't know why you you can ask me questions like that about me. And I said, well, because that's my job. And he said, well, I want to I want to find out more about you. I'm not happy with that sort of questions because you know that he was having a problem with Alan Sugar and everything going on at, at Spurs and everything at that stage that had. And uh, I said, well, how are we going to sort that out? And he said, uh, you're going to take me out for lunch. <laughs> and we then, this was 18 months out from the Euro 96. And he said, whenever you're around, he said, uh, we'll go out for lunch. Uh, he said, I'll choose where we go and you can pay for it. And I said, no, OK, that's fine. And he said, uh, well, I'd like to go to the Ritz first off. And uh, I've got a date in the diary and we'll go. So I go back to Sky and Andy Cairns. I said, Terry Venables wants me to just go out for lunch with him. No interviews, anything like that to get to know him more. But Sky, I've got to pay. I'm not paying. And he said, yeah, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll do it on a on the one-off basis. And Terry Venables just listened, as you are, very patiently to me now to, saying, you know, exactly um, what you're asking. How had I got into it? And when I used the Cambridge United effect, of course, that really resonated with Terry. And we had lunch every month, uh, right up to the Euros. But after the three or four of these, he told me three or four stories that I knew as a freelancer, I could have gone and sold for a few bob if I wanted to. Never did that. He was testing me. And then I got invited down to Scribes, which was his club at that stage in Kensington High Street, underneath the great old shop called Barker's. And it's where they all used to go for karaoke and everything like that and, and have a great time. And he 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 became a, a really good uh, friend again, as well as just man, manager of England. And he was great with his players. And the players then he had were extraordinary from Gaza, of course, in midfield to Shearer and Sheringham and, and Dave Seaman and everybody else. But he then made me start every time we went out for lunch. And it was just the two of us. And he'd say, right, I want you to write down the side now every time we go out for lunch that I will start 
Euro 96 with. And so he gave me this napkin and he said, I'm only going to give you one clue. I have only made my mind up, if he's fit, about one player that will definitely start for me at Euro 96. And, uh, oh, I said, oh, no, that would, I mean, it could have been any of them, couldn't it? Shearer, Sheringham, Gazerling. He said, Gary Neville at right back. And I said, oh, that's a shocker. He said, no, it's not. He said, I haven't got anybody else who can do that job in the country for me in the way that he can. He's brave. He's strong. He's got great vision. He sees things before an awful lot of other people. And if I've got somebody like that at the back, I know then my midfield can do what I want them to do, which is go further forward than defend deeper. And he said, so Gary Neville is the first and you can write the other 10 down. And we went from there, really. And then about four months out from the Euros, he said, is there anything you ever want back from me, Mark? And I said, if you ever lose this job, I'd like the exclusive interview. And he said, you've got it. Now, anybody can say that, can't they? There was still the trouble and he was obviously going to go to the courts or whatever to defend himself against Alan Sugar and everything else that had gone on at Spurs. So the FA were not happy with any of this. And they used to be at Lancaster Gates in those days. And there was a meeting with Terry about four months out, I think, from the Euros. And we were all outside. We were never allowed in. Ted Buxton, who was Terry's number two at that stage, and uh, a man that uh, put out the cones, really, and looked after him. He was, he'd actually been Terry, Terry's dad's butcher, even though he became manager of China in the end, which was quite extraordinary. But he was a good man. Anyway, he came outside and he found me. And he said, Mark, he said, um, there's going to be a big press conference at the Royal Lancaster Hotel at five o'clock. Terry has, is going to coach and manage the side for the Euros, but then that's it. They want him out. And they, they've done a deal so that he stays. He wanted a new contract. They're not going to give him one, but he'll stay till the Euros and then he's gone. But there's going to be three seats at this press conference and Graham Kelly's going to be there and David Davis is going to be there as the press officer, but Terry's not going to be there. He's already left. He's gone back to Scribes. He said to me that if you can get away from here quietly with your camera crew, he's waiting for you down in Scribes to do the interview. So... We're now driving a very short distance from Lancaster Gate to Kensington High Street. You could only get into Scribes straight off the pavement. So you can't get in unless the person from inside lets you in. So I'm on my way there. My boss rings me, Andy Cairns, and says, we're going massive, Mark, on this Royal Lancaster Hotel press conference. I'm bringing two further camera crews down for you. You'll host it all, ask the questions, and uh, we'll go from there. And I said, I'm not going to be there, Andy. It's one what do you mean you're not going to be there? <laughs> I said, well, I don't want to say too much, but uh, I'm not going to be there, but you've got to trust me. And he did trust me. Well, he said, well, what do I do? What do I do? So I said, well, you're going to get someone else quickly down to that press conference. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm thinking, well, here we go. If I, if I don't make this with Terry and he doesn't let me in, I've probably lost my job. He did let me in. I go downstairs. He's sitting there with a cigar, glass of champagne in his old fake Georgian armchair. <laughs> And uh, gives me a brilliant interview. And uh, it's the exclusive. Absolutely. He was working much later that evening for ITV, but this was the exclusive. And again, it was the days of tape. So I've done this interview very quickly, rushed with it to Millbank, which was our other studio, which was the Parliament uh, building. 
and uh, hot rolled it, as we say, at six o'clock. So they just played it back to the front, quickly wrote a cue for them. And uh, they played it in the top of the six o'clock news. And it was the first time that both the BBC, Channel 4 and ITV had had to go cap in hand to uh, Sky News and had to put the strap up speaking exclusively on Sky News. And and yeah. that, that yeah. made, cemented my relationship with, with Rupert Murdoch, really, at that stage. Yeah. And it, wow. just another extraordinary thing over, over. But again, as I go right back to the start of that, these things don't happen anymore because you've got 50 people surrounding a player. You've got managers yeah. who don't really want to say anything. And you've got communication directors at clubs who won't let you say anything. So those days are gone. Yeah. And it was actually the first thing I found amazing was uh, you spent that much time with Terry Venables before those Euros and there wasn't a dentist chair in sight. <laughs> What there was there was lots of other things in sight. What he was so good at, though, Terry was, he knew how to press those players' buttons, and he gave them enough freedom. And again, he could because there wasn't the mobile phone coverage. There wasn't people trying to trick them into all of this. We'd we'd lost a lot of that by this stage, uh, as you say, with the dentist chair and and everything that happened with all of that. But there was still enough of them being able to do things on the quiet like other young men would always do that um and i knew i knew loads of things about players that i would and, and will never tell anybody else about till i'm gone really, really there's yeah. just no point because it was yeah. it helped you for for all the other big things really and yeah there was that element of trust that i think uh, is is maybe yeah. being lost now big in, trust. in the modern day but uh, but i mean i mean just quickly uh, working on uh, working at talksport when you joined there because i think you joined there in 2009 from from the bbc yeah i did yeah. um and I, i've i've read one or two books that touch on some of the the stories of how talksport functioned in the early years i mean by 2009 had it calmed down a little bit by the time you joined or not really you know not <laughs> not really do you know what it was? By that stage again, everything had had, had changed. Um, Computerisation and uh, and everything had, had gone so far now, and we could do everything immediately. But with immediacy, you, you lose the the narrative, because no no sooner has somebody told you the story than somebody else thinks they've got another bit to it, and you've sort of if you're going throughout the whole day, by the time you get to mid afternoon into the evening, they think and they thought wrongly, I think that. The story had moved on so much. No, people still needed to hear that story for the first time. So that all changed at that stage incredibly. Uh, but talk sport was basically me going back to where I started. It was pure radio again. There was nobody to help. I mean, one of the first programmes that I remember doing, Mike Parry was the, was the programme organiser as such at this stage. And he just said, you can, have whatever, you can come in and do whatever you want on a Saturday afternoon. Um, six hours it'll be. And uh, we've only got the rugby on at the moment. And one or two other things, we'll find something for you. They didn't. I had six hours to fill with a producer who hadn't got a clue what he was doing either. And, so, and you opened the phones and we, we did bits and pieces and, and what have you and, and learned from that. And then Talk Sport managed to get a contract of the commentary, which, which changed everything. But oh, I remember going out to the World Cup Rugby World Cup with Talk Sport. Somehow we got that. Mosdy was now the programme organiser. Been number two to Bob Shen and the BBC. We went out and, and you know covered some great matches out there. But we would do a six-hour show from inside the stadium around a, a game that lasted ninety minutes, basically, and people were forty minutes each way and a bit of injury time is what I'm talking about. And we were just 
ridiculously waffling on and everything. But within all of this, there were all the stories. Alan Brazil was massive in those days. Parry and Townsend used to do a brilliant mid-morning show. In the afternoon, H&J, just iconic as well. Yeah. And uh, then we all fitted in around it. And to be fair, when uh, first Moz said, you can do the, the Saturday morning show with Mickey Quinn, who was a brilliant broadcaster. And we that was a real test for us because there were no view, no listeners at that stage on a on a Saturday morning and, and it was big time. We did well. And Quinny was brilliant. And then from there, I got the gig in the evenings eventually and Stan Collymore and myself on the Monday Night Club, yeah, um, which was, uh, I couldn't call it the Monday Night Club. I'd invented that when I'd been at Five Live, but they wouldn't let me take it with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we sort of called it something else. And I think for a year and a half, two years with Stan at his best, we had over a million listeners, which was just extraordinary at, at, for radio at that stage. And, and we used to just go toe to toe and, uh, that, but it was pure, it was pure broadcasting right back to the, the very beginning really. And yeah. I had to work and I know that I'm going to do exactly the same when I, start on talk tv on may the 1st that is going right back yet again up to date completely but back to not telling how much you know but asking the right questions in the right way and getting the right answers i always find it incredible those early stories of talk sport with people commentating from a hotel room kind of in the same city as the game was going on (laughs) it's incredible where they came from you couldn't make any of it up i mean we, um, I remember once in South Africa, well, the first, the first night was sort of, I was one of the new boys. So the first night we're in, uh, we're, we're, we're staying in Joe Bobo. The, the opening game is in Soweto and uh, we'd all got together. The security was obviously going to be a problem anyway, still. And we, we were staying in a, in a fi- the financial district of uh, Johannesburg and quite away from the stadium. And we said, look, it won't matter about getting to the stadium. I said, but when we, when we come out afterwards in the middle of Soweto, you know, we don't want to be left around as we were on many occasions <laughs> at other places we talked for. Nothing had ever seemed quite booked and everything. It was all part of it. Liam Fisher and uh, dear Matt Smith. Um, Liam Fisher, who's uh, been a very successful boss, obviously, and, and still there now, at, uh, looking over all under Scott Taunton, all, all the stations at Talk now and uh, at UK News. And he, he said, I can assure you, Mark, that we have sorted this all out. And there we are, three hours after everybody else has left the stadium in Soweto, <laughs> two in the morning. But that was that. I mean, we did at one point. I went out there for the draw, which is another extraordinary moment, four days in South Africa. And I knew that something was up because Moz D was the, the boss at this stage. And I met him at the airport. And it was just me and him flying out and meeting the others later who were going out for the draw. And he didn't even have a suitcase with him. And I said, <laughs> and I said well... What are you doing? He said, oh, I've got to buy some gear when we get inside the terminal and everything. And nobody knew he was coming out there with me. You know, so he came, <laughs> he came out. And I, we were there for three or four days, did a very successful job. I got an exclusive with David Beckham, which was absolutely brilliant. And then, and then he stayed out there with Matt to do more. But he'd got himself sunburned. And because he'd had no clothes, he'd bought shoes in South Africa. And he got these massive blisters. And he literally crawled around... Into, into sort of massive meetings with FIFA and other sort of program organisers. And he was a beetroot bread with skin peeling off him. But he said, it didn't matter. 
Kim, we have a great party after the after everything had worked so well. And and, and that was that was that. But don't let that misinterpret those guys. They were brilliant broadcasters, still are. Uh, Alan Brazil at his best was extraordinary. Mike Parry and Andy Townsend was laugh a minute stuff. H and J still uh, going strongly and a, and a different world again, which sadly you can't do anymore. Well, I mean, just again, kind of touching on that slightly because you've you came through. We mentioned that, that kind of Sky and Sky Sports hadn't been. Uh, hadn't been set up and, and started yet um, and we talked about the differences between you know that that communication just on a daily basis I mean do you think you know you, you've seen a huge evolution mm. in, in kind of broadcasting I mean you were in the thick of it you were working for Sky as they as they entered the arena so I mean how, how have seen it from a front line you know you had a front row seat for it I mean how, how did you view that that whole evolution of how football was covered and how sport was covered. They changed. Rupert Murdoch and his team that brought Sky in changed the face of sports broadcasting. End of. America always had done things very well, but um, Rupert Murdoch's Sky changed the face of football, which was the planet's greatest games. I mean, the Americans are very much looking inwards at that stage, still are a lot of them, but... You know, everybody else was, it was just all about football. The Premier League had gone through many difficult times. We'd had Heisley in 85, we'd had Hillsborough in 89, we'd had the Bradford Fire uh, disaster at that time too. The hooliganism problem was just dreadful. And in they came. And Sam Chisholm, who was uh, Rupert Murdoch's main man at Sky in those days, along with Trevor East and uh, Vic Wakelin, did the deal to change the face of football and change it they did completely and from that moment really certain men within the game also understood straight away sir alex ferguson was way ahead of the rest he realized that this was going to be the new way forward for everything and they they just kept on at it and uh, the bbc and itv at that stage just didn't know what had hit them and you know, whatever anybody says about Keys and Grey, that was an iconic programme over many years. And Martin Tyler's commentary and then the others that they used and the different bits and pieces. And again, they, because it was new, they still had, they could do everything and all these features with players and everything. That's that's even changed for all these guys now. I mean, if you remember three camera crews I told you for Terry Venables at the Euros, <laughs> by the time... I got to my last World Cup three or four years ago now, wasn't it? Um, 150 cameras. How on earth are you going to ask a question about anything? And how on earth are they ever going to answer anything? They're not. And that's where it it has changed completely. But those were, everyone says that age was the golden age, but it, it was a great age of of connection between player and reporter and broadcaster and therefore connection, because we're only the conduit through to the fans who don't get the chance to meet. We ask the questions as fans for the fans. And at times we have to ask the hard questions, but everything is so managed now. And clubs, I understand why they're doing it, have their own teams now. And very soon, I think press conferences will disappear completely as far as that's concerned, because the clubs will keep it all in-house. And and when they do that, they're the damage limitation will be even less, which I think is a shame in a way, because I think football could grow up again in, in many ways and realise that without the fans, 
you would never have anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, just just again, I mean, just on the subject of industry evolution, um, we talked about the huge one you were involved in. But I mean, moving forward, I mean, you have featured on the Amazon Prime coverage over the years. Um, and there's been some debate on the future of broadcasting, especially the, the Premier League in this country. I mean, can you see more streaming organisations trying to get in on the act or even moving to a Premier League focused Netflix style platform that I think Simon Jordan, uh, Simon Jordan's been talking about. Do, do you think that type of thing might happen? I think we're uh, again at a stage very similar to where Sky first came in, and the reason that I think like that is because um, the the whole complexity of selling what changes now. Everybody is after the global audience. I don't know that Sky Sports news will tell you this or sky sports but basically these days they're getting more hits off youtube for goals than they would be even off watching one of their highlight programs but if you own the rights to the games as the club yourself and you're a liverpool or a manchester united or anybody else in other parts of the world the numbers games if you can sell a television season ticket to uh, supporters overseas at a five or a game and there's 400 million of them then that's why we've got so many american owners wanting to get involved now it's more about the finance i think we've sold a lot of the game from that point of view but that that is going to be the way it will be and then there will be another problem in some ways on top of this which could actually devalue everything again is because unregulated commentary as we used to have on talk uh, in those old days will come back because I don't see how you can police that when in the equivalent of having Alexa in your car and you just say Alexa get me Sunderland against Morecambe in the final game of the season (laughs) however you can get it and by that stage so there will be somebody somewhere who's not regulated probably as we did off Juve or something like that, commentating on that game. So that is going to change it, I think, a lot. But there is no doubt for me that the European League that they were putting together, I'm pleased it didn't happen. But there will be games on the eastern seaboard. There will be players travelling all over and home games and home crowds and home occasions. I'm not so sure... Well, we're not talking 10 years now, but 20 years time, we will be looking at uh, a global Premier League. The Premier League now basically is ours, but it's only because it's hosted here right now. It's a global league. It started here. Who knows where it will finish? Yeah, yeah. And who knows the response from Alexa if you ask for Sunderland versus Morecambe? It'll probably tell you where to go, to be honest, if you ask it, <laughs> to, to, to find that. I, so I, I watched Morecambe. I watched Morecambe. I went to watch Cambridge United the other week. I went and stood. I've had enough of sort of being invited, really, and sitting in director's boxes at clubs. I've really enjoyed that, don't get me wrong. And when I was sort of focused on the job, that was part of it and at Cambridge. But, you know, having having sat behind the goal at Cambridge United and then sat in the dugout when Chris was the manager. And my job was to destabilise the linesman. And, <laughs> but, and in those old days, there used to be those little concrete dugouts and there yeah. would be Turns, John Beck, Gary Johnson, uh, Pete Melville, who was the physio, and me. And I was next to the wall. And my job was when the lino came up, 
early on in the game, I used to just have to sort of pop my head out and go, <laughs> we're watching you, lads. You look a little bit overweight. We're expecting you to keep up in this game, like. And then I'd sort of go back in. And they'd look round and we did all, all sorts of things like that. And when, do you remember when Becky decided about the buckets and cold water and all this sort of stuff, John Beck? Yeah. All the, we were having terrible away games when he'd become manager away from home. And Friday night football in those days was away at Colchester United or it would be away at Stockport County or it would be away at Plymouth. And in the early days, they, they used to have to stop off at a hotel on the Friday afternoon, have a couple of hours and then toast and marmalade or whatever it was before Becky brought in pasta for the first time ever. And he rang ahead to Stockport County and he said, I was on the bus still in those days. And uh, he uh, he said, uh, right, Mark, he said, when we get, to, I've already rung ahead to Stockport and they've got 20 buckets. And uh, when you get off with the physio, I want you off early. I'm going to do the, a bit of the team talk and everything beforehand on the bus. But I want you to get in there. Roy Johnson, former Arsenal physio, was then the physio. He said, fill all these buckets up with cold water. I'm going to put them all in the shower and chuck it all over them. So this is, this is your Kimball's and your butlers and all those sort of guys to wake them up two up after 20 minutes <laughs> what 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 john beck could do more than anything was he was my tennis partner on a sunday and he could tell people how good they were he never he he never had a problem of saying you are really good you've had a fantastic game he inspired you to reach a belief that you didn't really re, uh, realise you could get to. He went a bit far with growing the grass in the corners or, you know, kicking the ball out because it then meant they had 11 players on the field as opposed to the opposition taking the first throw with 10 and all the other, taking the dugout right down. He went over the top with all of that. But he was... He was one of the new fantastic managers, really, the, the real new science boys. He brought in a stats man before anybody else had even thought of a stats man. He changed the diets of the players and he got Cambridge United to the edge of the Premier, the first Premier League. But in the end, bottled it right at the end. But um, I'll I'll never have anything said against him. And he, he went, he, he trained a lot uh, and coached a lot of other coaches and he was very much involved afterwards of testing them for their badges with the Football Association, having done his bits and pieces in management. But at that time with Cambridge United, if it had just held his nerve and he needed a Chris Turner there at that stage, mm. somebody a little older than him, just to whisper in his ear and, ear and say, you're doing great, but... and. Uh, Gary Johnson then became the manager. We used to go and watch Sundays. We used to play tennis in the morning after the game on a Saturday. And then Lee Johnson and John's son, Tony, used to play for Newmarket under 10s. And we used to go and watch them after a roast dinner. And I followed Lee's career, obviously, all the way through. And uh, Gary, Gary Johnson, I remember Gary sitting down once because he, he, he wanted to be a manager. And he, again, was a great coach and a thinker. And uh, he said, I don't, he said it, it wasn't working out for him. And I remember him saying it just saying, I'm, I've got an opportunity to get into international management. And I said, well, you've got to take that. It was with Latvia. Mm. And I said, once you've joined that brigade, if you get that job, you will get another better job back here. And that's exactly what happened. And he was a terrific manager of Bristol City. And so I think was Lee. And 
whether Lee got long enough at Sunderland or whatever the case, it was very difficult at that stage. I think it was a long way from home as well for Lee. Um, I think he was a, a very good manager of Bristol City and a, a great thinker of the game and, and still is. And, um, you know, dear old Sunderland have had difficult times, of course, recently as well, haven't they? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, with, with John Beck, just quickly, I, I always looked at him because he had that, strangely, he had that kind of, he was advanced in his years, but at the same time, he, he came out of the, the Charlie Hughes, kind of the that yeah. old kind of style as well. Yeah. So he was kind of had this cross between this new age and the old style as well. It was, but like I said, that the results spoke for themselves. Yeah, he was a great thinker, and he he was a, another hundred percent man. Those old managers, and interesting, the Neil Warnock's retired now, and and others, they were sort of really nearly at the completely at the end of that era. They had to do everything at those clubs. They still do. I mean, like of your Carl Robinsons, and at Oxford, is doing so well mm-hmm. at the moment. They're, they're similar, but in those they used to have to get in the car at the end of training, go and watch other players, do it all themselves, do everything. There was no. There's hardly any scouting going on from anybody else, really, at that stage, at that level. They did everything. It was a 24-7 job, and they were magnificent. And there was all of those guys who managed lower division clubs, and still do. I've got so much time and respect for them, because it's it's a world away now from having, you know, a different physio for every single player at the club. You know, I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary. Well, I mean... Just before we get into the the kind of the, the modern Cambridge and quickly the League One at the moment, just want to talk about your recent work because um, yeah, you did a series of podcasts with Bet No More UK um, on yeah. the issue of gambling, where you said your own experiences in speaking, you know, with people about yeah, yeah. the journey and getting the help they required. I mean, was that was that series kind of important to you personally? It was very important for me to do it, and um, what had what had happened to me? I haven't. I'm I'm a reco- in recovery still. I haven't had a bet since in my very early days at talk sport actually uh back in 2009 and uh, i'd always had a bet and uh my family knew i'd had a bet but i also had plenty of time and i was away a lot and i was a, a very inward gambler uh i was somebody that just i wasted time more than i wasted a lot of money in the end thank goodness but I'd let an awful lot of people down around me. But this was my secret. And in the end, I knew to keep my family that I had to sort myself out. And GA in London uh, changed my life. Um, I, I, I understood right from the very start going to those meetings um, that I could identify with people who, who you know, were, were not judging you in any way and you weren't judging them. And it, and it worked for me. And... Uh, so Matt Smith, who uh, had also worked with me at uh, Talk Radio, he had also had a problem himself and uh, he went to work for Bet No More eventually and asked me if I would come and do this series. And of course, within the game of football, gambling was has been rife over forever, really, in many ways. And it's 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 become very different now. I would like at this point to say that I'm not against gambling. There are many people that can gamble um within themselves and have a fantastic time and what have you but there are those of us in the same way as people who drink or people who take drugs or whatever else that you know this was this was a real weakness of mine and I, I had to stop it and and never do it again and uh, Matt Smith was another of these who's, who worked with uh, was invited in by Tony Adams and uh, second child down in on the south coast there and really helped him and uh, everything so 
uh, he was working and he asked me if I would, would like to do a, a series, which is ongoing at the moment with people. And we started with Peter Shilton. Um, we've, I've just done Chris Wood, the Hampshire cricketer, which is about to come out very shortly as well. And uh, again, it just showed that f- for me the vulnerability of all of us. I mean, at times there was me going off to a football match at Ewood Park for a great cup game and I'd be leaving my family three hours earlier so I could go and have a bet on the way. And in the end, that was uh, something that I had to stop. And uh, my family, I was one of the lucky ones, my family have stuck with me and uh, I've managed to to stop that. It's, it was even more difficult than giving up cigarettes, which I did just before the Atlanta games um, back in the early 90s. But those were, you know, two addictions of mine that I've every day I have to think about it. But to work with Bet No More has just been incredible. And I, I sort of, I told, I came came out as it were on Talk Sport, and obviously not everybody had heard me. And then it was only two years ago on the Sunday afternoon show, or two or three years ago, where we had the press officer from the PFA had come on to talk about the problems with gambling, which I knew were rife within gambling, and. And, and and unless you're really involved and and it, you, you don't understand this. And he started to ask me questions. And Ray Hatt was in the studio with me and uh, Danny Mills and started to ask questions. And I just said, stop you right there. I said, you, you, I, I, with due respect, you don't know. You're not asking the right questions. You're not talking about the right things to me. You know, I'm in recovery of 12 years. I I know. I know about what it is and I know... and. It is difficult and complex and everything else. But now so much more is being done. And as I said, I can't, I don't ever want to say, don't gamble to to anybody who doesn't have a problem because it's like everything else. You know, if there are many people that can have a good time with it. But if you if you don't at any stage, GA Gamblers Anonymous are fantastic companies like Bet No More that have a great peer aid system for both um, gamblers and a, a wonderful system as well for relatives and friends of the gamblers if, if they need help in part of it. And, and recently John just launched an, another secure, uh, secure area for, for women in gambling as well. And, and uh, Bet No More and Frankie Graham, who are in charge, have, have just done a fantastic job. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Hopefully, it helps uh, people get the yeah. help that they require. But uh, one one thing you you've also mentioned, which I think you, you mentioned might have been a bit of an exclusive. It's quite recent. But you, you, new venture with uh, talk. Uh, is it talk radio or talk talk no, TV? Um, is it talk radio? Um, the twenty fifth of April, Monday the twenty fifth of April becomes talk TV. And Piers Morgan is doing a, a major show in the evening, which has been well documented. Sharon Osbourne is going to be there, and Tom Newton Dunn. They're, they're three players who are going to be very much involved. And then around this, talk radio is becoming talk TV, with some of the really well known presenters. And uh, talk TV will be presented from the talk radio studios. And I'm going to be doing a, a sports program from seven o'clock on a Sunday night through till 10 o'clock, first one on May the 1st, which I'm calling the Sunday Night Club. And uh, you don't need a membership <laughs> to join it. Everybody is a member. And I want to take everybody inside the dressing room, the boardroom, onto the pitch, off the pitch, terraces. It's about all of us who I think really wants to know where our game is going now and some of the other big issues in sport. And I want everybody just to 
tell me what they think and we can all make our mind up from that. So it very much um, as it should be, common British values together within sport. And that's the way we're going to go. Brilliant. Look forward to that. So you said that's May the 1st. May the 1st, Sunday, May the 1st, 7 till 10. Brilliant. So uh, there's some big football going on. And of course, it, it's TV now. So we'll be able to show the goal highlights as well as other bits and pieces. And if Roy Keane or Gary Neville walk out the studio, you never know. We, we'll hopefully get them on. We've got, we've got great ideas, big interests. But it's not just, I mean, it's football, of course, is one of the key things with the World Cup coming up. But there's cricket yeah. at that stage. And then we're talking about all of this, all of those stories with a little more insight and but hearing the views of the people. And let's still not forget, this only exists throughout the whole world because of fans who put their hands in their pockets. Without them, yeah. we wouldn't have professional sport. Absolutely, absolutely. Just on that point, we'll get we'll get to the where the real action is and we'll get back to, to Cambridge. But I just want to talk to you about Cambridge about this season because there is a fixture on Saturday. <gasps> but, uh, I mean, what a season, really, for, for Cambridge. I mean, coming up, possibly fight against relegation. I mean, mid-table's an achievement this season for, for Mark Bonner. They've done fantastic. Mark Bonner's been absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's such a good communicator. He's got one or two really good players. He's got he's got one or two old heads alongside him. And in the, Wes Houlihan, for instance, what a great player he is in the dressing room. And uh, Dunk is another at the back there. Uh, they got a great goalkeeper at the moment. And um, I, when I went back to watch them, I haven't seen them a lot recently live, but when I went back to, ironically, watch them play Morecambe, which is Sunderland's last crucial game, if they can win the, the, the two yeah. beforehand. They've got us, obviously, and, and Rotherham's the other one, isn't it, to come as well. So, yeah. But Cambridge United have got something about them this season. They've got some pace about them at times, but it's quickness of thought they they don't need to be taken out of their stride. And uh, they've got quality at all ends of the pitch. And the likes of Harvey Nibs and uh, Joe Ironside and all these guys have really, really shown what they can do. And I think they've surprised themselves. I think the last, that the biggest trip, I have to say, which will always be thought of this season to the northeast, was to turn over Newcastle United up the road in, yeah. in the FA Cup, which yeah. was an extraordinary performance. But... One that they can they can put together, and um, I think this is a really good foundation for them. They've they've been a yo-yoing up and down and out of the league and and what have you. But but now, as long as they can hold on to the, to Mark, because I think that's important as well that they can. The American owner has um, certainly sort of solidified things there a lot more. He bought the club originally because his mum was a fan at Cambridge United, season ticket holder, and still in the late seventies, and goes home and away. So um, well. there's the big connection there with that. And uh, he's done well. He's got Graham Daniels, who used to be a player at the club, who's also chair of um, Christians in Sport and a great thinker of the game. And, you know, they've, they've got a really good environmental side to the club as well as social side with the whole of the area. And uh, at the moment, they're, OK, they're mid-table, but they're riding high as a football club after some pretty poor times recently and they've secured the club again. They don't really need an awful much more than they've got. It's a lovely little club still. The, the ground's hardly changed except the South Stand, which is where the, where the visitors go mostly now. The rest of it's exactly the same as it was when I first went and sat behind the gold in 65. Yeah, I mean, I mean just on that subject, do you think, um, you know, after a solid mid-table finish this season, is it a 
big ask for for Cambridge to kick on? I mean, no, I don't think it is. I think it's at that level. All all the levels we see, consistency is what it is all about. So they've just had they had two run two wins on the bounce bounce. They come up against Charlton and they've given a lot. He's made seven changes. Second half, a bit naive again. They let Charlton get into the game a lot more. It, it was tit for tat and what have you. But they've just got to learn to be streetwise every now and again. And I think that's that's clubs. But, you know, the great late Chris Turner always used to say to me, that's the reason we're down there is because we we will throw in the inconsistencies at times, which um, get punished and uh, when you're a professional sportsman or woman and and they do and i think but i think you know a solid base for next season with some great youngsters coming through um i know from first hand because uh, i was still very close to my cricket club from cambridge and uh, they're no longer in partnership with cambridge united but they were at one stage and they have got an a, a massive base now around the area of younger sportsmen and women coming through that uh, have had good, solid backgrounds and really want to play the game well. And I think the future looks really good from that point of view. And if they can find one or two from there as well, I think they're going to be going to be good. And, you know, they just, they understand, still at that level, they're not making fortunes. You know, there is still the dream of possibly going higher, but there is no better way really of playing sport for a living in your 20s, even if you don't make, the millions and millions of pounds that only the top do, few do who spend it about five years after they've finished anyway. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, I mean, just on the, the, the position Cambridge find themselves, it's, it's a strange League One. You know, you've got, oh. you've, got our, you've got ourselves, Sheffield Wednesday, Ipswich, Charlton, yeah. Portsmouth, Bolton. Yeah. I, I mean, it, do you think, I mean, looking at those clubs at this level, do you think it's a sign of the times that, clubs stretch themselves too far that we see so many clubs at that level now everybody everybody chased the dream the premier league changed it for the better in many ways with through watching it and then the money that filtered down but it never really has the premier league is the king the championship i think is for me still one of the most exciting leagues in the world i mean that it's just full on start to finish 46 games you just go for it and it's exciting <laughs> and leagues 1 and 2 for me are exactly the same and the conference and there are some decent players at all those levels who i think could fit into any sort of side at that level but what's not really being given the chance are that some of those they won't take a chance in the premier league anymore on certain players from lower down I understand the loan systems. I understand the way that Chelsea cynically will loan to second division for a season, but then if they think they're any good, they won't. They'll take them away and loan them into the first division, take them away, loan them into the championship, and then possibly give them a contract or not. Um, outrageous behaviour, but that's a, a, another real story. And also, you know, poaching people and families and changing things, uh, taking them, taking the whole family to another area. Um, giving them an opportunity to have a different life for a while so that the son can become uh, a footballer at a Premier League club uh, in a way. And then if they, he still doesn't make it, that absolutely ruins everything as well. So all of these things are going on. But unless you're a billionaire 
And unless anything changes, you you haven't got a sniff of Premier League football man, um, ownership or anything anymore. And lots have tried it and lots have tried it lower down where they think that, you know, they're self-made men. They always worked. The, the local self-made man was the man who was probably chairman of the football club and owned a bit of the land or done this and that and put a few bob in and, and, and what have you. But no more. And uh, it, it's... I still think it's real football, though. I mean, going going back to the Abbey Stadium and just walking across the common, going and sitting down outside with a few fans beforehand, and then we go in, you know, just walk in, stand at the back of the stand. Bloke next to me is doing what he's probably done for 40 years with telling the referee what he thinks of him all the way through the game from start to finish. The other side, you know, it's panic as usual and everything. But it it's pure, real football still, as it always was. And and you don't get that when you're sitting in an Arsenal or anywhere else like that when tourists are coming in 20 minutes into the first half and leaving five minutes before half-time then coming back 10 minutes and leaving again after the next 20. I mean, it's ludicrous. And trying to take photographs in front of the, pre- the, the, the press box of themselves during the game. I mean, this is, you know, this is ludicrous. But this is what those clubs want and that's the way it's going to go and there are some great footballers and it, it's wonderful. But real football. And Sunderland, I think it seems like Sunderland, like Sheffield United did it, didn't they? They had to experience going down and going down far enough to understand, again, what the club is about within the community. And Sunderland have always been a good club within the community for me. That whole area has has had the rawness of very many different times over the years from the shipbuilding and the mining. And they've always had the losses and the wins are few and far between. And they understand that and you know that great documentary on on the great club as well on Sunderland mm. in many ways um clubs like Sunderland if they get it right will can be successful again but we also haven't let's not forget they haven't been a, in that top flight on a regular basis really for many many years i mean 73 when they won the cup only two sides um since then like themselves Southampton and West Ham won the FA Cup from outside the top league. You know, that was that was different. And they, they've been up and down, and, and as these other clubs have. I think you are where you are. If you're playing 46 games a season, you, you, you are where you are. And that's where they are. And I'd love to see Sunderland get up. But to talk, if they have to go as they do, if they, if they win their game against Cambridge United, I'll, Cambridge United got a bit about them, and I'll, I'll tell you where and where I think that they've struggled a little bit recently. But first, if they get to Morecambe on the last day, the likes of Cole Stockton up front and they've got another good flying winger down the right, um, they'll have a lot about them. Sunderland, it, this isn't going to be easy, these three games. And three games in eight days when I know that Morecambe have only got the two to go, haven't they? So this is a crucial time. And, but I think as well in Alex Neil, you've got, a man who knows what he needs to do. But Cambridge United are not going to be easy. He rested seven in midweek against Charlton. Um, he perhaps rested one or two too many. I don't know what he'll do. I don't know whether he'll give young Mannion another gaming goal. Doesn't have to. He's got two great goalkeepers. Mannion, by the way, I'll say it here straight. Mannion is a, is a, is a young 18-year-old. He's going, he's going to go all the way. He's a real little diamond that they've got there. And they've got one or two other good boys coming through. But it's again, it's been on the experience. Uh, Steve Smith up front scored some terrific goals. They are a good side. And if and they'll play their football and they'll keep their patience. 
They'll defend as a, a, a unit. And Sunderland have got, you know, with that extra little edge that there will be in a big crowd, no doubt, at the Stadium of Light, of course. Yeah. Fascinating. First 20 minutes going to be really important there. Really important there at the weekend. So don't rule Cambridge out, but their legs might have gone a bit. And if I was to think of anything, and Mark Bonner would kill me, uh, if if you've got a flight, right-hand side was the way that, that Morecambe punished Cambridge throughout that game. United got themselves dragged forward and they're... The, Two touches and a fly. If you've got a flyer down the right, I don't know who plays right side up um, front for. Well, something. we had we had Jack Clark out there for a bit at. Uh, but Plymouth. you know that was an area that that Morecambe really got into Cambridge United and and had the success with the goal and and could easily have got another or two. But it's whether it's all about whether Sunderland because there's no nerves on Cambridge United. They've got nothing to play for and, and but they've got everything to play for and. What will there be? How many? Will it be nearly a full house? It won't be far short, I shouldn't think, will it? I think we've been getting just over 30,000. That's fantastic, 30, isn't it? So it, it might be a little bit more than that, I think. But even in those heady days on the terraces, I looked it up today. That first ever game I went to Sunderland, Roker Park, 66. There's only 24,000 there then. There'll be more there this time around for a, a, a game in Division One, yeah. third third tier. But, you know, I mean, it, I, I, in many ways, it would have been great to have been there. But uh, I'm not going to be there this uh, this weekend, but um, I want Cambridge to do well. But I want Sunderland because Cambridge can't go up to go up. And certainly my brother now lives in New Zealand and his boys, they're all Sunderland fans. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the family and the history that we've had means that uh, yeah. it's a no-lose situation if it comes down to it this weekend. That's it. You've, you've told us now that you're 49% Sunderland, of course, and you're... 51%, 51%. Cambridge. <laughs> I'll do it <laughs> Never ever but, buy uh, a football yeah, club it... with 49% of the club. You need 51% every time. Well, well, with our club at the minute, it's best not to mention percentages well, and owners no, and, and things like but that. But these are the things that have been happening. And, um, you know, it's, it's something... Because, you know, over the last few years, the, always the talk was that Sunderland had a some really good young players to come through and youth setups, but you've got to have the bottle to give them the chance, but you can only really do that when the situation allows. And that's where it gets much more difficult the lower you go down. Well, we, we had uh, we had two academy products uh, get uh, England to a yeah. European final and a World Cup semi-final. So yeah. we've done something right. Along and the two years. of the but greatest with, with moments, two of my greatest moments ever was when I came back to cover Sunderland in in. I can't even remember what the game was now, but I met Jim Montgomery for the yeah. first time properly. And that was wonderful. Man. And then there was a guy who only played about 20 games for you, who then came on and played 260 games for Cambridge United when I first started covering them, called Tom Finney. Northern Ireland mm. International, played in the 82, I think it was, World Cup Finals. And he's still around. And uh, I just thought of him and Jim Baxter and Jim Montgomery and Len Ashurst and all the others. And uh, it's just been an absolute delight to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And, of course, when it comes to Sunderland, it's, uh, it's a case of the, the beauty is in the struggle, I think, uh, kind of. The hope kills you every time. Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, of course, I mean, let's hope it's a, 
It's a good game on Saturday, from and from a Sunderland point of view, I'm hoping yeah. that the Cambridge team are already on the beach, <laughs> thinking about next season. But but you've actually you've got us a little bit scared because I think you've said that they're going to be really up for this one, and I think they're probably going to have a, think they're a good crowd following them. He's he's been clever. He's got he's had one or two players who've been out injured who've got back in, just who who haven't had the the miles on the in the legs this year, but have now got themselves fit in the last two or three games. I think. In, I mean, anything could happen, as we know. But I think the occasion, and from what I've always seen at Sunderland, when you when you walk out of the Stadium of Light, you know that you're in a big game. And it will be... Exa- I mean, Mark Bonner only has to say, feel the way you did up the road in the third round of the FA Cup, and we won't go far wrong today. And for all of the advantages of a great Sunderland crowd... It always lifts the opposition at this level. It's always twice as difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, very last, very last point because you're an experienced broadcaster. You've seen it all. In a nutshell, do you think Sunderland's going to do it this year? Do you think we'll get out of League One? I think that three games in eight days is tough, but I think you'll beat Cambridge United. I think the important game is midweek. And I think you should win that. And then that last 90 minutes against Morecambe, fighting themselves, of course, still possibly at that stage for another reason, which might actually benefit you. I think they're there or thereabouts, aren't they, up now? But yeah, three, I don't see any reason why. I mean, eight, eight days to reach the playoffs and are in your own hands, basically. Yeah. You've just got to... Just go for it. And I think that Sunderland can do it. Okay. But then I would say that that. because they're my second team. I'm not going to say, no, they're not going to do it. (laughs) You can't. What else do I want to say? I don't want to say anything else. I I want to see Sunderland back in the championship because I think when they get out of League One this time, they will have that Sheffield United effect. They will understand. The fans are so knowledgeable up there about the football anyway. Newcastle United are going to a different level after Project Zebra and the Saudi Arabians. Forget about them. You can't forget about them, but forget about them. Sunderland themselves have a great opportunity to get back in that championship and to make it two top sides in the northeast, which is what the country needs again. Well, that's a that's a perfect place to to leave it. And uh, on that note, I just want to say thank you very much, Mark. It's been an absolute honour and a privilege and Chris, it's uh, been great. all the best for the new venture and if you're ever up in Sunderland if you're ever visiting your spiritual home please uh, oh, I shall be back give us a don't shout. worry I shall, I, shall, I shall be coming back past the pension monument I still love it I still think that the seafront which I think they've really smartened up well haven't they Roker and yeah, Seaburn and all around the, the old port area now if that had the weather of California you wouldn't know the difference Exactly. I, I say that regularly to, to my kids, although I don't, I'm not sure they're believers, but uh, I, I, I try. <laughs> been fantastic speaking to you, Mark. Thank you for asking me, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again, Mark. Really appreciate it. I've got an extra special reason now to look out for the results over the weekend. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.